And so the Lord Jesus, on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and then he said something that none of the disciples expected. See, as Jesus' death draws near, he meets with the 12 disciples to have one last meal. Now, this last meal is not a farewell meal. It's not like Jesus saying, hey, I... I'm leaving. I'd like one more meal with you guys. It's been real. This is actually the Passover meal. So in God's perfect divine plan, the night before Jesus dies, his last meal is not a random meal. It's not merely a sentimental meal. It's a Passover meal. It's a, it's a memorial meal of epic significance in the life of an Israelite. You've got to remember The disciples are Jewish. They're observing the Passover just as they had done each and every year. So if we put the disciples at around 30 years old or so, they would have had 30 Passover meals. As good Jewish boys, every single year they would have gathered with their family to celebrate the Lord's Passover all the way into their adulthood. They'd even celebrated... A couple of Passovers with Jesus. Jesus was with them for several years. And so this wasn't even the very first Passover they had with him. But at this last Passover, Jesus does something that none of them expected. And isn't that just like Jesus? As you read through the Gospels, you'll find that he's just got this habit of doing the unexpected. Whatever else people expected, Jesus does something that nobody expects. The Gospels are full of these interactions where people expect Jesus to do one thing and then he does another. But in order for us to catch the unexpected in this last Passover meal, we have to know what the disciples expected, right? Because as we read Luke 22, maybe uh, as John was reading that over us, Nothing seemed off to you. Nothing seemed out of the ordinary to you. Nothing seemed unexpected. And that's because we don't know what they were expecting. And my hope is that this morning, as we look back at the original Passover meal, that we get a clearer picture of what the disciples expected, what they didn't expect, and then how the Lord actually exceeded their expectations. My hope is that it would forever change the way that we come to the Lord's table. See, each time that we gather every week, we take the bread and we we take the cup. and, And yet, are we aware of what we're holding in our hands? Do we come to the table with the right understanding? Do we come to the the Lord's Supper with the right posture? Do we come to the table with the right response? And so to structure our time together... In the sermon this morning, we're going to look at three things as we look at this meal, this Passover meal, this Lord's Supper. We're going to look at the intention of the meal. What did God intend with this meal? Then we're going to see the innovation of the meal. How Christ took this original meal and innovated and did something that no one expected. And then finally, we're going to look at the invitation of of the meal because this isn't a meal that was for them it's also a meal for us and we are invited to come and take and eat so we'll see the intention the innovation and the invitation of the meal 
Now, before we dive into Exodus chapter 12, let me catch you up to speed on the story. And you're probably in a really good position if you were with us for our series through the book of Genesis. And as, as the book of Genesis comes to a close and, and, uh, and, and Exodus uh, opens up, it really just picks right up where Genesis left off. See, the descendants of Abraham have greatly increased just as the Lord had promised. We see this in chapter 1 verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Remember as Jacob and Joseph died, their descendants stayed there in the land of Goshen. And just as the Lord promised, they were fruitful and they multiplied and they started to fill the land. The Bible tells us in chapter 1 that a new Pharaoh arose. So the Pharaoh that knew Joseph died and there was a new Pharaoh and he did not, the Bible says, did not know Joseph, which is another way to say he didn't regard Joseph with the same kind of favor that the previous Pharaoh did. And he feared that the Israelites were growing too strong in number. Verse 8, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out... They join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, the Egyptians set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Verse 14, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Life took a turn for the worst. Harmony turned to bitterness. Freedom turned to slavery. And life turned to death. And this went on for 400 years. And the weight of slavery began to crush them. And under the weight of that crushing, the people of God cried out for the Lord to deliver them. The Bible tells us that God heard their cry, their cry remembered his covenant because he loved his people. He was moved with compassion and moved into action to rescue his beloved people. And so if you know the story of the Exodus, you know the principal player in that, in that story is who? It's Moses, right? He's raised up as a rescuer. And his job is to confront Pharaoh to let his people go so that they may go and worship him. I want you to notice that their rescue is not merely for freedom. It's not, hey, let my people go so that they can go on their own. They're rescued to become God's people. In other words, their identity was not found merely in their freedom, but in being God's people. That was their identity. Yet Pharaoh refuses to comply and he hardens his heart against the Lord. And that makes sense to us because why would he give up that free labor so easily? And so the Lord sends a series of nine plagues. The, the Nile, uh, the water in the Nile turns to blood. He sends frogs and gnats and flies, death of the livestock. People get boils. There's hail and locusts and darkness. And yet, none of these plagues turns Pharaoh's heart. He's still unwilling to let the people of Israel go. And so that brings us to... This tenth and final plague, the death of the firstborn son. Exodus 11. Moses said, 
Thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go in the midst of Egypt and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. Every one of them. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on the throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there never has been, nor ever will be again. Now, unlike the other plagues, this plague comes with a specific set of instructions, and they're meant to be closely followed. This isn't one you want to skip over. Not only that, with this... um, with, the, with this set of instructions, God is going to have them um, uh, make a meal. It's different than all the other ones. And this meal is actually going to become a meal of remembrance that will go on in, in, in perpetuity in the life of Israel so that they can yearly remember the Lord's deliverance. Look at Exodus 12, chapter, uh, uh, Exodus 12, verse 2 and 3. The Lord says, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. So this begins the instructions on what they're to do. And uh, notice the first thing he says is that a time is set. Verse 1 says that the Passover will mark the beginning of months. Now think about it. If you're a slave, why do you need a calendar? We have a calendar because the time is ours. It's, it, it's something we, we, we have. It's one of our most precious commodities. And a calendar helps us organize that time. But if you're a slave, you don't need that because your time is not your own. And Moses says, uh, this is going to be a beginning of the calendar for you. Because you're about to be a free people. And as you organize your life, as you organize your calendar, it needs to begin by remembering the Lord. The Lord wants their new year to begin by remembering this central identifying event. How the Lord rescued them. And then on the 10th day of that month, they're to kill the Passover lamb. See, Moses already said a destroyer is coming to bring death to every household with a firstborn son. So if they're going to survive, they must be ready. Second, we see a victim is chosen. Look at chapter 12, verse 4. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. Each according to what uh, each can eat, you shall make your account for the lamb. And your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. And you can take it from the sheep or from the goats. So now the Lord gives uh, specific instructions on this lamb. They're to choose a lamb and consider its size because it had to be enough for everyone to eat. Everyone needed to participate in this meal, but there couldn't be leftovers, okay? And this speaks to the precious nature of this sacrifice. It shouldn't be discarded. It shouldn't be treated as just common rubbish to be thrown out with the trash. Not only that, but this lamb can't be any old lamb. You can't go get that janky lamb out back that's on its last leg. You know what I'm saying? The one that you'd be happy to get rid of. No, this lamb needs to be a year old. Precious. A lamb a year old could could produce. It would be valuable to you. It needs to be without blemish. The best of the flock. 
Not a cheap gesture, but a costly sacrifice. And then this lamb is going to be slaughtered and his blood smeared. Look at verse 6 and 7. So after you've chosen the lamb, you shall keep the lamb until the 14th day of the month. When the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill, kill their lambs at twilight. And then they shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house in which they eat it. So this lamb is slain and the blood is caught in a basin. And they were to take a hyssop branch and use it to smear the blood on the, the door jams, the, the sides and the top of the door frame. In other words, they're, they're to mark their home with the blood of the lamb. And so not only is the blood shed, but then it's applied to the doorposts. So it's poured out and then appropriated by those who wish to be saved. And what this is doing is it's marking the homes of faith. Those who are trusting in the Lord's salvation... Those who are trusting in the way out, the way to escape the destroyer. See, it marks them as those who trust in the Lord and his deliverance. Now the blood certainly marks their doors, but it does more than that. See, if, mar if, if all they needed was to be marked, they could have gotten a pigment or dye or paint. And that would have marked their house. But God's terms are specific. This salvation requires a sacrifice. If life was to be preserved, then life must be sacrificed. And so for this task, only blood would do. And then finally, the meal is eaten. Look at verse 8. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Its head with its legs and inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. You shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And so once the blood was shed, the animal was to be roasted and eaten. So... If you're tracking with me, the house is marked with blood, but now the people need to be joined with that sacrifice. They need to become connected. Like I said, you can't be a bystander. They must become participants, so they partake of the lamb. They must consume it. They must eat it. Those who wanted covering and protection from death needed to be transformed from bystanders to partakers. So eating the sacrifice, they become partakers of that sacrifice. It's not enough just to look at the lamb. They must become one with the lamb and eat it. And so they're instructed to eat all of it. Did you notice that? Nothing is left over. It's a sacred meal, not a common meal. And the meat is accompanied by bitter herbs and unleavened bread. If you've ever made um, bread before, you know that you have to wait for it to rise. They didn't have those little packets of instant yeast. So they had to let it sit out. And natural in the air yeast would, would, would get into the bread, into the dough. And, and they would, it would take some time for this. And he's saying there's no time for all of that today. This is a meal eaten in haste because in the morning we're getting out of here. 
And the bitter herbs were to remind them of their slavery. And the unleavened bread speaks to the haste in which the meal is eaten. There's no time for the dough to rise. They needed to make this meal, eat this meal, and be ready to go. They're on the cusp of redemption. And they needed to be ready to move quickly. So they were to come to this meal dressed and ready to go. Shoes on, bags packed. So what's the point of this meal? What, what, what is God's intention? Well, what I want us to see is that this meal is simultaneously doing two things. On the one hand, it's an act of judgment. And on the other hand, it's an act of redemption. Look at verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You see what's happening? Verse 23 makes clear that the destroyer, this angel of death, is coming to bring judgment. Now that word judgment has fallen on hard times, hasn't it? It's not a word that's popular. It's not a word you probably use often anymore because we simply just don't like it. We don't like how it sounds. We don't like what it means. But our opinion of the word doesn't change the reality that without judgment, there's no justice. You realize that, right? In a, in a world that cries out for justice, you can't have justice without judgment. They go hand in hand. And God's judgment is fitting here. If you go back and read through the book of Exodus, you will read about Pharaoh's genocide project against the Israelites. He sought to kill all the sons of Israel. Hitler didn't come up with the Holocaust. This Pharaoh did. This was the first Holocaust, and he sought to rid the world of the Jews. And so God's response is a fitting response to that atrocity. He, the, the, the Pharaoh wanted to kill all the firstborn sons, and so this is a punishment that fits the crime. Now here's what's remarkable about the destroyer. This angel of death is given orders to kill all the firstborn in Israel, or I mean all the firstborn in Egypt without distinction. Meaning no one is exempt from the coming judgment unless, unless they're marked by the blood of the Lamb. See, they couldn't just say, listen, I'm an Israelite. I don't need to do anything. Just by my, by my pedigree, the, the destroyer will pass over. No, no. That's why the Lord gave specific instructions. If you want the destroyer to pass over your home, it must be marked by the blood of the Lamb. You must demonstrate your faith. See, he doesn't distinguish the Israelites by their ethnicity. He distinguishes them by their faith. By their faith. If by faith they have taken God's word seriously. If by faith they have followed God's word. If by faith they've taken shelter under the blood of the lamb. Then the destroyer will pass right over. Judgment for sin in the land is coming. God's wrath will not discriminate. It's coming for us all. The only escape is for those who trust in the Lord in his prescribed path and plan of, de of deliverance. So the Israelites have a choice before them. 
to trust in the Lord, to be careful to obey as he's instructed, or to do their own thing. Their ethnicity would not save them. In fact, they were told, don't even go outside. Don't open the door. Judgment was coming from God's hand through the destroyer. And the only protection was by the blood of the lamb. In other words, every house in Egypt that night would taste death. For those who trusted in the Lord, the lamb tasted death in the place of the firstborn. For those who disregarded the Lord, the firstborn son would taste death. In every single home in Egypt that night, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. One or the other. In every home in Egypt, there was either a dead son or a dead lamb. It was one or the other. And for every Hebrew home who trusted in the Lord, the lamb got what the son deserved. The lamb became a substitute. The lamb paid the death of judgment so that the firstborn son didn't have to. And can you imagine being that Hebrew firstborn son, looking at the table that night and seeing the lamb and knowing that the only reason I'm not dead is because the lamb was slain in my place. Now I know God's justice flies in the face of our modern minds. We're so used to hearing this this idea of tolerance and indifference as a solution to matters of justice. They become supreme values. And yet notice, the Bible is not embarrassed by a God who takes decisive action against sin. You know, there's no apologies. There's no um, excurses on uh, why God might pursue justice and judgment for sin. It just says the destroyer is coming and he brings judgment on sin. Full stop. In fact, the Bible says that this very reality is why God is glorious and deserving of our allegiance and praise. Think about it for a moment. A God who is indifferent towards sin, would that be a God worthy of your devotion? A God who sees matters of injustice, the cries of victims, the way in which sin has ravaged through our land, a God who turns a blind eye to that would not be a God worthy of your allegiance your affection, and your devotion. But not only does God intend to execute judgment in the Passover, he also intends to redeem his people. The dark night of judgment also brings about the dawn of a new morning of redemption for the Israelites. Because when the sun rises, the people of God walk out of Egypt, full of plunder from the Egyptians as a newly redeemed people of God. You see, the Israelites were captive to a hard and evil tyrant. They were slaves to a power 
greater than themselves. And they were completely incapable of delivering themselves from bondage and slavery and death. If they were able on their own to procure their own salvation, they would have done it a long time ago. But only the Lord could provide the redemption they needed. So what is God's intended purpose of this meal? To bring about both judgment and redemption. That's God's intention. Now as we move into this next phase, this innovation of the meal, we fast forward to the time of Christ. And after that first Passover, year after year after year, 1,500 or so years, the Jews would celebrate their Passover meal every year, beginning their new year. And as the redeemed people of God, they were to celebrate this Passover every year so that they would never forget where they came from, what they had been delivered out of, and who it was that had rescued them. And so as time went on, the people of God added a liturgy around this meal. So they took uh, Exodus 12 and they added elements to it. This liturgy that was meant to give a structure to the meal. So I want to walk through what a Passover meal at the time of Jesus would look like. So every Passover meal would have a leader over this meal. and he, He'd be the one to guide it. Usually it was the father. Because you see, you don't just eat the meal. As you go through this meal, you explain the meal. It's like catechizing everyone in the home. Maybe you've been to a Passover before. You know that there's a leader of the meal and you walk through the meal. And as you go through this meal, you actually enter into the story. Remember, the Passover is this dramatic reenactment of the meal. And so they were to enter in and feel the oppression of slavery of their forefathers. They were meant to reflect and remember God's mighty act of salvation. And this Jewish Passover liturgy is called the Haggadah. And they would, at the, as they would begin, they would recite these words. Therefore, we are bound to thank, praise, glorify, exalt, honor, bless, extol, and adore him who performed all these miracles for our fathers and for us. He has brought us forth from slavery into freedom, from sorrow to joy, from mourning to festivity, from darkness to great light, and from bondage to redemption. Let us then recite before him a new song. Now this Passover meal is divided into four main movements. And each one of these movements is marked by a cup. So there's four cups of wine to mark each movement. And these four movements are based on the promises of God's deliverance in Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, first promise. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, second promise. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Third promise, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Fourth promise, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. And so just like in that first Passover meal, a lamb is slain and then roasted. And after sunset, the family would gather to eat the Passover meal. So they're sitting down, the first cup is poured. And a preliminary course 
I don't know what Jews call an antipasti, but that's what this is. First course, green and bitter herbs is served. And at this point, there's a word of thanksgiving. Now this first cup is called the cup of sanctification. And it's based on that first promise, I will bring you out. The word sanctification just means to be set apart. So that's this idea of God bringing them out of Egypt. God promised to bring them out of slavery and to set them apart as a people for himself. That's the basic idea of sanctification, to be set apart. Their slavery had prohibited their ability to worship and serve the Lord. And so now the Lord has promised to bring them out and they will be set apart for him. And after this bitter herbs course comes the main meal. And at this point the lamb would be brought to the table and served. And now a second cup is poured. Now the meal uh, is explained. The story is told. People enter into the story. They walk through the Exodus story. And then the family would sing what are called the halal psalms. Psalm 113 and 114. And then they would drink from the second cup. Now the second cup is called the cup of deliverance. That's based on the promise, I will deliver you. Because God's people are unable to affect their own deliverance. And so we're helpless to deliver ourselves. So we've got to trust in him and him alone for salvation and deliverance. And then at this point in the meal, the presider would take the unleavened bread and he would give thanks. And here's what he would say. As he holds up the bread in front of his family, he would say, this is the bread of our affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt this bread this this bread eaten in haste is to remind them of the years of slavery and brokenness and affliction and then the main meal the lamb with this unleavened bread would be eaten and then after that a third cup is poured and consumed and this cup is called the cup of redemption It's based on the promise in Exodus 6 that says, I will redeem you. And it's to remind us that salvation comes at a price. That's what the word redemption means. It it means a payment price is paid. And then after this cup, they would sing the last half of the halal psalm. Psalm 115, 116, 117, and 118. And then the Passover concludes with the fourth cup. And this This fourth cup is called the cup of expectation. And it's based on the promises, I will take you and I will be your God. You see, even after Israel is released out of slavery in Egypt, the redemption that's achieved is not fully complete. Though they're free, they're not home. Why? They're headed towards the promised land. Israel must make her way through the wilderness until she reaches home. Redemption is secured, but... The journey to the promised land is still necessary. And so there's this holy expectation that the Lord will fully and completely deliver them and carry them home. That that is what a traditional Passover meal would have looked at at the time of Jesus. It's It's a meal that he would have shared with them on several occasions. Now look at Luke 22 to see how Jesus innovated this meal. Verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired 
to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. That's the second cup, by the way. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. So let me catch you up on this meal, because Luke doesn't walk you through all of the details, because he assumes his first readers, Jews, would have known. He's given them enough markers to know exactly where they are in this Passover meal. And so... The night in which Jesus was betrayed, they come together, they celebrate the Passover, and Luke cuts right to the important scene. And so by verse 19, we're already into the meal, right? So the, the lamb has been slain, it's been roasted. They would have already had the first cup. They would have already had the first course with the bitter herbs. The lamb has been served along with the second cup. They've already walked through the whole Exodus story. And they drink the second cup. They've sung Psalm 113. They've sung Psalm 114. And then Jesus takes the bread. And he blesses it. And remember what they expect him to say. They expect Jesus to say, This is the bread of our affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. But instead, what does he say? This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus is innovating this meal. He's transforming the meal. He's taking the Passover meal and he's transforming it into the Lord's table. He's saying, this is no longer the bread of our forefathers' affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. I am going to suffer to give you ultimate freedom, the ultimate salvation. See, the Exodus was a, a type. It was a, a form. It was a pattern of salvation. It was, it, was, it was a pattern of freedom. It was pointing to this moment. Can imagine the disciples eating their meal that night with the words of Jesus in the back of their mind? Thinking, what did he mean by that? What did he mean, this is the bread of my affliction? What does he mean, this is my body broken for you? And as they're contemplating what Jesus meant, that he went off script, that his body would be broken and given for them, Jesus keeps on innovating. Verse 20, likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Remember that third cup, called the cup of redemption. It signified that a payment price had been paid to purchase their salvation. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you what that price was. The cup that is poured out for you is this new covenant in my blood. What was the payment price for their release? What was the payment price for their redemption? It's the blood of Christ. Jesus is saying, the blood of sacrificial lambs is not and has never been sufficient to inaugurate the new covenant. It was never sufficient to pay for your life. The only thing precious enough to pay for the sins of the world is the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the lamb that every Passover lamb has been pointing to. I am the ultimate Passover lamb. My blood was poured out to purchase your forgiveness and redemption for all who are joined 
to me. And if you think the innovation stops there, it doesn't. He, he keeps on going. You see, they're supposed to finish the meal, right? You're supposed to have the last cup, this cup of expectation. But what does Jesus do? He stops the meal. Before it's over, he stops the meal. We see this in Matthew 26, verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So Jesus puts a pause on the meal. He says, I'm not going to drink the last cup, this cup of expectation, until I do so in my Father's kingdom. It's almost like he's saying, listen, the table's not big enough. We need, to, we need a bigger table. So we're not going to complete this meal until my Father's table is full. And I share it with all of you in my Father's kingdom. He puts the meal on hold so that the entire work of redemption can happen. See, at that last Passover meal, it's like Jesus sees a bigger table and he sees your face. And he sees your face. And he sees your face. And he says, there's a seat for them at the table. The meal will end at the marriage feast of the Lamb. When we get to raise that last cup together with Christ. See, in this Passover meal, they were to look back at the Exodus and remember. But in the Lord's Supper, not only do we look back at Christ's death and resurrection, what do we do? We look forward with expectation when we will one day drink together that last cup of expectation so now we look forward to the return of Christ. And in Matthew 26, verse 30, he tells us that when they leave the Passover meal, do you ever notice that little detail it says as they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, they sing a hymn together? You know what they're singing together? Those halal psalms, Psalm 115, 116, 117, 118. Let me read to you a few lines from those psalms. Psalm 116, 8. For you've delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from stumbling. Verse 13. I will lift the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. Verse 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Can you imagine Jesus singing that? The Lord is God and he's made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Jesus is singing about himself. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. You know, these songs were written hundreds of years before this moment. And all of them point to the sacrifice and death of Jesus. Here's the point. Jesus takes this Passover meal and he effectively says, Every Passover meal our people have ever had was pointing forward to this moment. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's why 1 Peter 
says in verse, chapter 1, verse 18, You were ransomed from your feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but what? With the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Friends, Jesus is the bread of life who would conquer death on our behalf. He's the better wine that satisfies the wrath of God, paying the penalty that we deserved. He is our true Passover lamb who was slain to take away the sins of the world. He innovated this meal so that we wouldn't miss it. So that every single week as we hold the bread and the wine in our hands, we might remember him. He transforms the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. So let's see this invitation. One of the things I love about a meal is that inherent to it is an invitation to participate, isn't it? Think about that first Passover meal for a moment. To receive the meal was an act of faith, wasn't it? The destroyer was coming, judgment was coming, and God invited them to a meal. Now I'm not, I don't know about you, but if I know the destroyer is coming, my first instinct isn't, let's stick around and have a meal. Let's sit down and eat. But it's no ordinary meal. It's an invitation to a table of faith where you trust in God's redemption, where you trust that the Passover lamb will provide all the covering you need. Now remember, the Israelites, as they sat in their homes that night, they were under a sentence of death They were bound as slaves in Egypt, and yet they took shelter under the blood of the Lamb. While the destroyer brought judgment, and at the same time brought deliverance for the people of God. Don't you know that this is the exact same things that happens for us in Christ? Before Christ, we too are under the bondage of death. Bondage and sentence of death and sin. But all who take shelter under the blood of Christ, what happens? Death passes over you. Derek Tidball says, too often, people want the exodus without the Passover, the liberation without the blood, salvation without the sacrifice, and freedom without the cross. But these freedoms come at great cost. You can't have one without the other. They're inseparable. And just like the Passover lamb, where a time was set for their salvation, A time was set from before the foundation of the world that Christ Jesus would be slain. He was carefully chosen to be sacrificed. He was spotless and perfect. His body was broken and afflicted so that he would become the bread of life for us. And his blood was shed to fill that cup of redemption that we might drink of Christ's salvation. But unlike the Passover lamb, death did not have the final word. See, those Passover lambs died and they stayed dead. But Christ Jesus dies, but on the third day, he rose again. And now this risen, living Savior invites you and me to his table. And if you want to sit at his table, you have to receive the meal he's provided. We have to receive him. That's why when Jesus speaks of the bread, he says what? Take and eat. He says, take and eat. This is my body. Speaking of the cup, what does he say? Drink of it, all of you. Why? For this is the blood of my new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, if you want to sit at my table, you have to eat and drink the meal I've provided. You have to receive it. 
You notice the death of Jesus doesn't automatically do anything for you. Did you know if you were starving, you could die in the presence of a meal? If you were starving, you could put a meal in front of someone and it does nothing for them. Looking at a meal doesn't do anything. You have to receive it. You have to consume it. You have to take that meal and appropriate it to yourself. The death of Christ does nothing for you until you receive it. That's why Jesus says, eat it and drink it. And this is an invitation for you to, in, to, to identify with Christ's broken body and shed blood on your behalf for the forgiveness of sins. You cannot come to this meal as a bystander. The death of Christ does nothing for the bystander. The death of Christ does nothing to stir the heart and affection of a bystander. When we come to the meal, we must come as those who remember that it should have been you and me. Just like the Hebrew son looked at that table and saw the slain lamb and said, it should have been me on that table. In the same way we look at Christ and we say, it should have been me on that cross. It should have been you and me paying full payment for our sins. So when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, he's speaking more than just recalling to memory. It's more than mere memory recall. Every week when we come together and we take the bread and we take the cup, we are to remember the sacrifice of Christ. We are to remember and feel the bitterness of our sin. We're to be renewed in our sacrifice and commitment to him. We are to be resolved in our vigor to live a life holy and pleasing and on mission for him. In other words, the meal is a visible, tangible sermon in your hands. A living picture of the gospel where Christ's death and resurrection is vividly proclaimed. That's why for millennia, Christians have come to the table with a mix of sobriety and gratitude. Soberness, because we realize the depth of our sin, and gratitude because of what Christ has done. It's a bright sadness. We mourn over our sin as destitute exiles, and yet with gratitude we're welcomed to Christ's table. Friends, my hope this morning is that we would taste and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is good. That's it. That we would see in Christ we have a truly satisfying meal. And that we would think on the sacrifice of Christ with sobriety and gratitude and be renewed in our zeal to live for him. And that we would worship him in spirit and in truth the one who lived for us, died for us, and was raised for us. Let's pray.